the bulletin. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 is where we are going uh, to anchor in. And what we find here is Paul is on his second missionary journey. He had traveled through Thessalonica because he wasn't welcome. While he was there, some Jews got agitated at what he was saying, and they ran him off, right? And so he goes down to Berea. And in Berea, as he's preaching in the synagogues, he finds some Jews that are more noble, right? And so they are willing to listen. But what ends up happening is the Jews from Thessalonica, they follow him. And in Berea, they start stirring up and agitating the other uh, Jews and the people there. And so Paul says, I have got to get out of here. And so he is sent uh, he is sent away, and he chooses to go to Athens where we are going to pick up. But what he does when he leaves is he leaves his fellow missionaries, Paul, not Paul, his fellow missionaries Silas and Timothy behind. Look in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Sorry, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. The them is Timothy and Silas. Right, And as Paul enters into Athens, which is now the capital uh, modern day of Greece, right? it had been superseded by Corinth as the commercial and political center of Greece. However, this city was still the philosoph philosophical capital of the world. It was the city of Pericles, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Men who had established patterns of thought that has affected human thought for centuries. And then in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. In fact, it had so many idols that one was found with the inscription to the unknown God. That's what Nick ended his scripture reading on. And as you heard in the scripture reading that Paul uses this idol inscribed with the unknown God, he uses it to point them to a God. Not to a God, but to his God. And we're not getting into Paul's sermon today. We're going to do that next week. All right. But Paul says, you have this inscription to an unknown God, and he's unknown to you, but I want today to make him known to you. This unknown God, I do know and I am going to proclaim. When you have to wait for something, when you have some time and uh, you are waiting for the next, <clears throat> excuse me, and you are waiting for the next event to come, what is it that you do? How do you spend your time when you are waiting? I'll show you what mine looks like. When I'm at the grocery store, it looks a whole lot like this. Waiting in line, looking up, making sure nobody's behind. When I'm waiting at a traffic stop, what am I doing? Kind of looking at this, putting it, make sure I don't grab it too much. When I'm waiting to pick up my kids, what am I doing? I am either reading a book or reading my phone, just waiting for the next thing, making sure that I am in uh, my own little world. And many of us have ways in which we wait. Maybe, hey, thanks, Tom. You can fall asleep now. <laughs> and many of us have different ways in which we wait and the very things that we do. Some of my favorite, uh, you know, is when you go to a grocery store 
and you see the guy, especially like in the summer, you see the husband, the windows are rolled down, the front seat is laid all the way back, and he's taking a nap because the wife said, hey, I just got to go get a few things, and he knew better, right? And so he's waiting by taking a nap. Uh, or when you go into Target, and you're walking around the aisles, and you see, you know, a wife over here, and then you see the husband, what has he done? He's plopped himself on the couch that's right there that's on display because he's waiting, and he knows a woman at Target could take a really long time, if, especially if she's anything like my wife, right? And so he's going to wait, and that's how he's going to choose to spend his time. What do you look like when you wait? If we want to point people to an unknown God, okay, that being our God, if we want to point people to the unknown God, we wait differently, there's this great uh, TV series uh, called Friday Night Lights. And in that, I think it ran like in 2000. It's old, all right? Uh, but in that, the coach would always say, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And I kind of want to use that mantra this morning of how we should be people as we are waiting. Because Paul waits differently. Paul has clear eyes. He waits with his eyes opened. I mean, what does Paul see when he gets into the city, right? Athens was a center of art, beauty, culture, knowledge, right? It had the, uh, the Acropolis um, as it was elevated enough to be seen miles ar around. It had the Parthenon, the Temple of Athena, which was built on the Acropolis, right? Um, Athena being the goddess of wisdom, Right, it had the Agora, the marketplace, which would have been porticos painted by famous artists. As Paul walks into the city, he is definitely seeing the beauty that this city provides. But he's also seeing idols. Right? In the Parthenon stood a huge gold ivory statue of Athena, whose spear could be seen from 40 miles away. There would have been images of Apollos, of Jupiter, of Venus, of Mercury, of Diana. The entire Greek pantheon was there to be marveled at. Although most English versions render it full of idols, the idea conveyed seems to be that the city was literally under idols. It was smothered with them. It was swamped by them. In consequence, there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. Some uh, Roman satirist puts it this way. And he hardly exaggerates when he says there were more gods in Athens. Uh, sorry, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. For there were 30,000 of them. And then as stated earlier, just in case one idol was missed, there was one with the inscription to an unknown god. As Paul enters into the city, his eyes are opened. He is engaged. He's taking in all of it. But it's not just taking it in that makes what Paul does important. It's what he does with it. He engages his heart. Clear eyes, full hearts. And if Paul is anything like me, he takes in the beauty, he shakes his head at the mess, and he moves on. Takes in the beauty, shakes his head at the mess, and goes about his business. Because really, this is just a stop. He did not plan to go to Athens. He was run off. But he took a look at everything. And the scripture says that Paul's spirit is provoked. 
Your version may say greatly distressed. And that word is only used one time in all of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is not easily angered. It's that same word. Love is not easily provoked, right? And here you say, well, Paul's getting provoked, so how do we balance that? I think where we need to anchor what it means to be provoked um, is where we find reference to it in the Old Testament, okay? In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, okay, often when the word is used, it's used in reference to the Holy One of Israel in reaction toward idolatry. In other words, it's the way that God reacts when he sees his people um, throwing themselves at false gods. For example, when the Israelites made the golden calf in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7, when they worshiped the prophet Baal in Psalm 106, and when the northern kingdom made another calf in worship in Samaria, Scripture says that it provoked the Lord to anger. Exodus chapter 34, 14, Ten Commandments. What does it say? You shall worship no other God, right? And then in Exodus 34, 14, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. When he is provoked, it's because he is jealous that God's name is not given the honor that it is due, and it's given to statues and to stones, All right? And so Paul gets provoked. And if you, we were going through the book of Acts, in chapter 16, there's a slave girl that's annoying Paul. Paul's walking around and she's just annoying him. And she's actually saying true things about him, but it annoys him. And what does he do? He says, evil spirit, come out of her. He didn't do it because he wanted what was best for her. He didn't do it because he saw this bright future ahead. He did it because he was annoyed. So it's not the same kind of annoyance that Paul showed there. It is a very different kind. He's provoked because God's not put in his rightful place. They were giving honor and glory that is due to the one true God, to statues and stones that couldn't do anything for themselves. I think that Paul is provoked because he sees that men and women of Athens have chosen a pursuit that will end in destruction. A a pursuit that they do day in and day out, and it's not going to mean anything at the end of their lives. And he is moved to godly sorrow through his provocation. Godly sorrow that is accompanied with compassion, with love, and a willingness to engage those people for the good of their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's provoked because God's not put in his rightful place. He's provoked because he sees that the end that they are working to is going to lead them to destruction. Every culture, ours all over the world, every culture is going to operate within a certain framework. And a framework is a set of ideas and ideals that you base, that we base, our decisions off of, right? And Paul sees it in Athens, and he points it out. Look at Athens' framework in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, right? That's the framework that Athens is operating 
in, one of being very, very religious. How did Paul know that? It's because of what he saw, right? Some cities, uh, especially in the Bible Belt, we'd say, man, they have a church on every corner, right? Athens, it'd be like they have 10 temples on every corner, right? They are very, 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 very religious. They serve many, many gods, right? And then they even have the God that's just in case of an emergency, right? This unknown God, in case somebody gets upset, this God gets upset and says, hey, you don't have an idol for me. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. We just didn't know your name. And he's like, it's Billy. So they write, <laughs> just kidding, Billy. And so they write that down, right? And in case of emergency, God. There was a framework that they operated in in Athens, and that was to make sure that all of their bases were covered and that no stone was left unturned, right? They couldn't control it all. Our culture, one here in Richmond, one here in Glen Allen, is not immune to operating within a framework of having gods that we idolize, right? Like maybe for us, it's not statues and stones because we know that that could be a little bit silly, but maybe our God here in this city as we open our eyes, as we engage our hearts, our idols could be that of status and comfort. You look around, and these are the altars in which everything is sacrificed for. How is it that I am perceived by others? When people see me, do they respect me? When people see me, do they see the power that I have or the wealth that I have? And how can I do everything in my power to make sure that the perception that I throw out there is one that people are going to like and people are going to respect? And how much do, am I going to sacrifice in order for that to be the case? Our, stat, our gods could be something like that of status and comfort. Did you know um, that here in this area, uh, we did studies in a three-mile radius uh, of the church? And did you know that in a three-mile radius of this church, that the overall education level in this area is well above the U.S. average? Did you know that the concern in this area, higher than other areas in the United States, the concern is having a satisfying job and career? Did you know that when it comes to affluent families, we have a 136% higher than what the national average is. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm saying those are realities, things that are here in our city within a three-mile radius. And could it be that those things lead us into sacrificing for these gods of status? It's all about perception. I want this education so that people see me a certain way, so that I can talk a certain way. I want this kind of career so that people respect me. And again, this is not, I'm not saying that this is, uh, if you have that, then you are obviously worshiping a false god. I'm saying we have to be careful and we have to look and look at the city around us and say, what are the idols that we struggle with and that our city may struggle with? And what about the idol of comfort? Comfort at all costs. It's all about me. It's all about me, me. This is what I want. This is how I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to make this decision and it's going to make my life easier. It's going to make my life more comfortable. And now because of this decision, I am able to do blank, 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 and blank. I'm able to retire early. I'm able to do this. I'm able to do that. I'm going to buy this house so that our kids can all have their own bedroom. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to sacrifice so much so that we live comfortable lives. Never, I won't say never, but in Scripture, hardly ever does the gospel grow when the aim of their lives is comfort. Comfort is the antithesis of, I think, how God works within our lives. Yet it's the very thing that I find my family doing often. How is it that we can make this as comfortable as can be? Our vacations, how can they be comfortable? Our decisions, how can this honor us and make life easier for us? Comfort at all costs. Do you know that in this area, the average family household income makes $20,000 more than average U.S. families uh, in the United States? You see, there are times that we can sacrifice everything for comfort. We can sacrifice everything for status. And we say, it's my money, my energy, and my time. And these are the things that they are going to go to. And I'm going to do everything that I can in order to have those things. And maybe you're not on the same page with me, and you're saying, I don't think that it's comfort, and I don't think it's status, and you're thinking of something else. Great. How much are we willing to sacrifice to achieve those very things? Because it's those things, it's those idols that will be the very things that enslave us that enslave the people around us. And what Paul did was he saw those idols and he steps into their culture and he stepped in and says, this is what you are doing. I want to point you into a different direction. We must be people that as we are waiting, as we are looking at the city around us and as we are looking even after our own hearts, we are able to step in to the culture around us and say, these are the very things that you're striving for, but that's not the end goal. It's going to lead to destruction if that is all you value in life. We have to step in and we have to be provoked. We have to open our eyes and engage our hearts because if we are not provoked, then we will never be led to action. We will be nev- never be led to make a difference. Life is more than comfort and status. Life is more than the altar of whichever idol you are thinking of. Right? Like, um, well, I just thought of one. Never mind. Um, Life is more than that. And we have to be able to look at the people around us and say, you are missing the point. You're missing the point. There's something greater. Not, not, Not talking down to them, not making them feel worse, not making them look bad, but pointing out the truth and saying, God wants so much more for you. Our provocation comes because we know what God has designed us to be. We know what God has designed us to do. And our hearts should hurt when we see people who are running in the opposite direction because they believe and think that it is going to lead to fulfillment. There's more to life than comfort and status. And like Paul, our spirit must be provoked, but our behavior must be restrained by wisdom and respect. Always. With clear eyes, with full hearts, we can't do, sit and do nothing. But by the Spirit of God, point them to the God of comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So if our world is searching for comfort, let's point them to the God of comfort. If our world is searching for status, then let's show them the status that God gives them in John chapter 1. He gives them the right to become the children of God. We must be provoked in order to point people to this unknown God that we ourselves know. Second point is this, to point others to the unknown God, we must be in the business of building bridges. We have to build a bridge, and we must start with where they are currently at. Paul, if you uh, were listening, he attempts to build a bridge in three different locations. The first one's the synagogue, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 17, right? He goes into the synagogue. This is where you're going to find the Jews. You're going to find the God-fearing Greeks, the ones who have a biblical background. And Paul says, I'm going to go in there first, and I'm going to try to rile things up and see if we can get this mess taken care of. And most of Acts, as Paul goes into the synagogues, you always have a reaction to what they, um, what they think of Paul's words, right? They get upset. They incite. They get a mob. Here, there's no reaction. And I don't know what that says about the men and women there. Maybe they didn't care. But scripture doesn't say. So Paul goes into the synagogue first, and then he goes into the Agora, right? And the Agora is going to be your marketplace. It's the gathering place where all sorts of people would be there. It'd be our equivalent of doing street evangelism, right? Agora itself derives from the word, uh, derives from a word meaning to bring together, right? So this is where all sorts of people are. He's out in the streets. Have you ever heard of agoraphobia? Right? It's the fear of crowded places, right? entering into an open uh, place. And Paul, while he's there, he meets two different kinds of people. He meets the Stoics and the Epicureans. Right? And the Stoics, they would emphasize fatalism, right? that all events are predetermined um, and that you should be submissive and endure pain. Right? Human beings must pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason, however painful it might be, and develop your own self-sufficiency. That's the kind of thought that the Stoics would have. And then you have the Epicureans, and they held a worldview that gods were long away, okay? they're far away from one another, they have little to no communication, and that one should get on with life as best he could, discovering how to maximize your pleasure in this world. And these are the kinds of people that Paul meets uh, in the Agora in the marketplace. And what do they accuse him of? They accuse Paul of bringing strange things to their ears because he was speaking of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And that's when they say, you know what? We want to hear more about this, right? That's, if this is the center of world thought, they want to know what Paul's talking about. And so they ask God to come back. God, they don't ask God. They ask Paul. Okay? They ask Paul to come back, and he goes to the Oropagus. And they say, can you share these things here? And the Oropagus, it could either be a place or it could be people. Right? Um, the Oropagus is literally the hill of Ares. So if you've heard of Mars Hill, that was this. Oropagus could also mean a governing body of Athens, the men who govern 
the city. And so Paul here doesn't just go to the synagogues. He doesn't just go to the marketplace, but he also goes to the academy, to the university, speaking to the men uh, who are leaders. They're highly intellectual, and Paul gets to share with them the message of Jesus Christ. If we want to wait, if we want to be provoked, if we want to bring others the message of Christ, then we must go to where they are at. And we need to find them, and we need to make a way. I'm going to be honest. Not that I haven't been honest this whole time. <laughs> Many of us in this room have prayed that young people on college campuses would be part of Glen Allen Church of Christ. But we have not gone to the extent of stepping foot on one of many campuses in the city. I'm a minister here, and I have not stepped foot on one campus with that in mind. We must go to where they are at. Build a bridge. Julie, I'm going to pick on Julie for a little bit. Uh, we went to the doorways uh, last week, and that's where we serve food to people who are uh, in need as they are waiting for their loved ones to work at a, not to work, but to get treatment at a VCU or a hospital. Um, and during dinner, we sit down with different ones and we talk. And Julie gets to know a lady called, uh, her name's Barbara. And Julie um, started this conversation with her. Uh, and we leave. And then two days later, I get a call from Julie saying, hey, can you take Barbara home after uh, I've met with her because I'm taking her out to eat and then I'm going to take her to go visit her loved one because she doesn't have a car while she is here. What is Julie doing? Julie is bridging, building bridges with those who need it and looking for ways to do it. She's going to them. The lady said, yeah, Julie contacted me and like, called me like two or three times in order to set this up. Julie was wanting to do it because she knew the difference that it would make. And Julie probably hates that I'm even saying it this morning, but we need to point out when people build bridges and when we are willing to go to in order for people to come across. And that was a way that Julie did it, and it was an example to me of how to wait with my eyes open and my heart full so that I can show people who Jesus Christ is. To build a bridge, not only must we go, but we must also be willing to set an anchor to share common ground, to establish it. Read Acts chapter 17, verse 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this, oh, this I proclaim to you. When he says to an unknown God, I think what he is pointing out is really their deepest need, their deepest desire to connect with a God that they have no idea who it is because they are looking for fulfillment. And Paul uses this as an anchor. And we would look at that and say, I can't believe that somebody is following an unknown God in a stone and a statue. And Paul sets an anchor there. He says, this is what I will proclaim to you. In other words... As we go and as we look to build a bridge, we must be willing to anchor ourselves to a point where we find out what their deepest need is and we figure out a way that Jesus can meet it. Their deepest need was to this unknown God. And Paul says, I'm going to anchor here and then I'm going to bring 
over here and I'm going to anchor it over here into my world and then I'm going to let Jesus walk across. I'm going to anchor, I'm going to build, and Jesus is going to walk. And I am going to do that. We must be people that as we wait, we anchor ourselves in the deepest needs that we see in our community, that we see in our families, and that we see even in our own church. And I'm almost done. Why is everybody laughing? <laughs> we have lots of cultural sayings now. What if we anchored the truth of Jesus in those cultural sayings and saying, we know that this, you mean it this way? Let me show you a different way, right? Body positivity. It's a movement that celebrates the human body in all its forms and rejects the idea that everyone should strive to conform uh, to the same type of body, to the same shape. What does Psalms 139 say? For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul, soul knows it very well. In a world that's saying, hey, we shouldn't all look the same. We have a God that says, I agree. That's why I didn't make you to look the same. And so we set an anchor there and we let Jesus walk across. What about my body, my choice? And I'm not here to argue and to agree or disagree, but I am saying if we hear that, there is an anchor that we can set. Let me tell you about the one who took that saying more serious than anybody that I know. Jesus said, it's my body and my choice. John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord only to pick it up again. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. This charge I received from my Father. My body, my choice. Look what Jesus did with His. He chose to lay it down. He chose to sacrifice. This is not a comment on whether it's right or whether it's wrong. It's a comment on this deepest need that our culture has of being autonomous. Jesus shows what you ought to do when you do have your own choice. For I lay my life down for my brothers. What He chooses to do, He sacrifices and he gives life. Let's take that saying and make, let Christ walk across. What about fear of missing out, FOMO, right? Social media, and maybe everybody has it, I don't know, right? But as we look at it and we see people doing things and we go, man, I just miss out. I want to be a part of that. But you shouldn't fear of missing out on that activity or that party or that church thing. Fear of missing out on eternal life, on salvation through Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 or 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed. There will for the former things have passed. In eternal life, there is perfect provision. There's perfect fellowship. There's perfect protection. There is perfect joy. Fear on missing out in that. You want to fight for marginalized people? Let me tell you about the one who gave his life, not just for the marginalized, but for everyone. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He fought, he fought for you as well. This is a worthy cause. Hear me out. I am not asking you to be full of one-liners 
and expect that to make a difference. I am asking you to build a connection, to build a bridge, and anchor yourself within the deepest needs that our culture has, and let Jesus do the rest of the work. Don't sacrifice genuineness for a one-liner. Get to know the people around you. Get to know the people who work for you, the people who work with you, the people who make you work. Get to know them. Find their deepest need and anchor it there. I would, be argue, I would argue that most of what people are looking for can be found in the person of Jesus. In a world searching for peace, point them to the Prince of Peace. In a world searching for love, point them to the one who defines himself as love. In a world that fears being alone, point them to the God that is always with them. I believe that there's a God-shaped hole in everyone's heart that only he can fill. And whether the people around us know it or not, know it or not, it is our job to say to this unknown God that you serve, let me point you to the one that I know and to the one that you should come to know as well. As we are waiting in this world, may we have clear eyes and full hearts for it is only when we are provoked enough to build a bridge, for it is only then that we are moved enough to build a bridge that requires us to first go and then second to anchor in. And next week we'll talk about what it looks like to share that message as Paul did in the Oropagus. Let's go ahead and stand and sing. I serve